Hi, my name is John, and this is the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament, specifically on the Book of Acts. And the Listener's Commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching project that aims at providing down-to-earth Bible teaching, what I call blue jeans theology, straight through books of the New Testament so that we can understand them, our lives can be rooted in them with the goal that we can follow Jesus right in the midst of our everyday life. And to those of you who make this ministry possible by your generous support, thanks a ton. And if you've been impacted in some way by the listener's commentary, would you prayerfully consider becoming a donor and a supporter of this ministry? In this recording, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 25, 23 through 26, 32. And we're continuing the story of Paul's arrest, incarceration, uh, multiple hearings, and then ultimately appeal to Caesar. Specifically here, we're going to be looking at Paul's hearing before King Agrippa. So let's recall the situation. Paul has been in Caesarea now for two years, first under Governor Felix. Now the new governor is Festus. Festus has only been in office for maybe two, three, four weeks. And he's already had Paul's case brought up to him when he was in Jerusalem from the Jerusalem leadership. He's already had the Jerusalem leadership come back down to Caesarea. And he had a formal trial for Paul there in Caesarea when he wanted to know if Paul was willing to go to Jerusalem and be held on trial there for these charges. Paul was uh, sure he would never get a fair hearing, so he appealed to Caesar. That's where we're at. Paul has made this appeal. Paul's going to be shipped off to Rome. But Festus, the governor, is sort of at a loss as to what to say about his case to the emperor because his case is not really a violation of Roman law. It's more an intramural Jewish debate. Well, in the meantime, as Festus is trying to prepare the paperwork to send Paul on, King Agrippa has come for a visit to pay his respects and build some political relationships with the new governor. And King Agrippa now wants to hear Paul's case. And since you have two key political rulers in the region, Festus and Agrippa, they decide to pull all this together with all sorts of uh, military pageantry and political power all joined together and have a hearing. Now, we need to remember that Agrippa is... Um, he his region that he rules is in the north, Galilee, and even further north than that. So he doesn't really have any jurisdiction legally here in Judea. So this hearing isn't to decide his case so much as, as it is sort of a informal inquiry to really figure out the details and help Festus prepare how to present the case to the emperor when he sends Paul his way. That's the nature of this particular event. So here's how it unfolds. It picks up in 2523 this way. So, on the next day when Agrippa and Bernice came amid great pomp and entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus. So, just before we look at how everything unfolds, notice what we've got. We've got Agrippa and his sister Bernice. We've got the commanders, that is the heads of the uh, military cohorts there in Caesarea. Um, as best as we can tell, there were five of them. So we got the five key military commanders. We've got Agrippa, Bernice, we've got Festus, and we've got the prominent men of the city, some of the most uh, wealthy, powerful, influential men of the city. And so we've got really this kind of 
show of power here. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in before them. And so here is Paul himself, the apostle in Caesarea, with all the political and military might represented for the region of Judea and Galilee and even further north than that. And Festus sets up the the purpose and the nature of the hearing this way in verse 24. He says, And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appeal to me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. And so he reviews the the hostility towards Paul and how this case, as soon as he arrived on the scene, was brought to his attention, how they want Paul to be condemned to death. But, verse 25, Festus says, I found that he had committed nothing deserving death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. That's really the only choice he had politically and legally. And yet, verse 26, Festus goes on and says, I have nothing definite to uh, about him to write my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write, for it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him as well. In fact, legally, he had to write a summation of the case in a letter form that presented the case along with all the other records of the legal proceedings. He had to send all of that to the emperor and explain the case. And he's a bit at a loss because, as he said to Agrippa just yesterday, he said it turned out that the charges really were more about Jewish debates and Jewish differences and about this dead man named Jesus that Paul claimed alive than any violation of Roman law. And now he's appealed to Caesar and I need to figure out what to write. And so that's the question and that states the purpose and nature of this hearing. It is more of an a kind of inquiry, of, uh, an investigation to help Festus figure out how to state the nature of the charges and the case against Paul when he sends him off to Nero. So with that set up, at the end of chapter 25, we turn to chapter 26 and we begin the formal proceedings. So Agrippa addresses Paul himself and Agrippa says, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So he invites Paul to give his defense. Then Paul extended his hand and proceeded to make his defense. And so for the third time in the book of Acts, Luke is going to record Paul's conversion story. That's what Paul is going to give by way of his defense. It'll be a little bit different, um, packaged differently and summarized differently because it's aimed at Agrippa. And so Paul is targeting his telling of his conversion to Agrippa particularly. And remember, Agrippa's family has a long history among the Jews, and Agrippa's family has ruled the Jews, and they're part Jewish. And so he's aiming this at Agrippa and his Jewishness and his understanding of the Jewish nation. That's how this is aimed. But still, it's the third time Luke is recording his conversion story, which just reminds us how important it is to Luke's story that he takes the time to record this three times in the book of Acts. Here's how Paul tells his story to King Agrippa. Verse 2, regarding all the things of which I'm accused of by the Jews, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So Paul opens with the expected and customary words of 
not really flattery, but complimentary words to the ruler before he makes his defense. This was the way legal proceedings worked. It was expected. And Paul's words here aren't really empty flattery, but when you listen to what he says, he says, because you're an expert in all the customs and questions of the Jews, which he is, being that his family's had a long history, being that he is Jewish and he's tried to present himself as a faithful, loyal Jew ruling on behalf of the Jews, he understands the Jewish religion, he understands the Jewish people, he understands Jewish politics, he understands the Jewish nations, and so Paul's words aren't empty flattery. Um, he really does consider himself fortunate. And he invites Agrippa to listen to him patiently. Then he begins his testimony uh, with telling his background as a faithful, zealous Jew. Verse 4. So then, all Jews know my way of life since my youth, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and in Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. So Paul begins with his background, and he says, look, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, they can even testify to this if they're willing to be honest and testify. They can tell you that I was a Pharisee, that I was a strict Pharisee, right, that I grew up here in Jerusalem. And so he, he just begins with his background emphasizing, I, I've been a faithful, zealous Jew, and actually what I'm on trial for as a faithful, zealous Jew is the promises made to our ancestors. Look at verse 6. And now, he says, I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. For this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. And notice he says our, our Jews, but this is also a way to kind of pull Agrippa in because Agrippa has presented himself as a faithful Jew to the Jewish rulers. And he notice what he says. I'm on trial for the Jewish hope. This reminds us of two things. One, it reminds us uh, that Jesus is the culmination of, the fulfillment of, the Old Testament story, the Jewish story, the story that he refers to here as the promise made by God to our fathers. Like this promise that started with Abraham and traveled down through Isaac and Jacob and to the 12 patriarchs and onward through the Jewish history culminates in the person of Jesus himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope made way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. So it reminds us of that. It also reminds us again that Paul is going to zero in on the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus, his fulfillment of that hope, his messiahship is uh, verified and vindicated by his resurrection. And so Paul is going to zero in on that again. In fact, verse 8, this is what he says. After reminding King Agrippa, of his background and of the hope of the Jews and Paul being faithful to that and really being on trial for that, Paul says in verse 8, a rhetorical question, why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? That that's the ultimate fulfillment of this hope, that the resurrection from the dead. And some Jews, particularly Pharisaic Jews and many of the popular level Jews of Paul's day, had that hope. Some Jews didn't, but some had this hope of the resurrection. What they didn't have was that a resurrection would happen in the middle of history to the Messiah. 
And that's going to be the focus point of where Paul's going to end up on this. So he says, verse 9, So I thought to myself that I had to act in strong opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Because of my zeal as a Pharisee, because of my zeal for my ancestral religion and my ancestral hope, I thought that I had to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, and this is just what I did. In Jerusalem, not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being put to death, that he voted in favor of condemning them, that he supported their execution. Um, And he says, verse 11, and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was extremely enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And that's going to lead to him summarizing what happened on the road to Damascus. And so Paul really shares that in his zeal, he was, a, he was an ardent opponent of the way of Jesus and of the followers of Jesus. He voted for their death. He put them into prison. He got authority to kind of spearhead rooting them out and arresting them. He even did that, so zealous was he, he even did that in foreign cities, he says. And Paul believes that his past as an opponent of Jesus and an opponent of those who believed in Jesus is evidence that points to the authenticity of the fact that he now believes in Jesus and promotes Jesus. And so what made that change? And Paul believes that his hostility to the way of Jesus is evidence that says the change that came about because of the resurrection of Jesus and him seeing the resurrection of Jesus is verified by virtue of the fact that he had been such an ardent opponent of it. There's nothing that could have changed him unless Jesus had indeed been raised. And so he goes on, verse 12, and he says this, While so engaged, while I was engaged in pursuing them to foreign cities, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who were journeying with me. And so the way Paul states it here, when he says a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, he's saying this is not a just a natural light. This wasn't just like a burst of light from the sun. This was some sort of supernatural light. And God's glory is regularly pictured in the Old Testament as well as in Jewish writings as being revealed in a bright and glorious light. And so that's the way Paul describes it here for King Agrippa. And so he says that this light shone on me and those who were journeying with me. Verse 14, he goes on and he says, And when we had all fallen to the ground... I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect. And so Jesus, speaking to Saul or Paul from heaven, speaks in Hebrew directly to him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does it mean to kick against the goads? Well, a goad is a uh, ox prod or a cattle prod. It was used to poke an animal, an ox in the back end to prod him along and to get him to go. And and as you're poking him, if the ox kicks back when you do that, it just jabs that stick further into the flesh and hurts more. So that's the imagery that uh, is being used here. This is the only place in the three tellings of Paul's testimony where we get this line from Jesus. And so Paul, once again, adding a few extra details in the way he tells it, Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. And that became a saying 
that really pictured the idea of to resist somebody, particularly to resist the divine will. And so don't resist me. I'm calling you to myself. Don't kick against the goads. How did Saul respond to that? Well, we know because we've seen the other two testimonies. Verse 15, Paul said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness, not only to the things in which you have seen me, but also to the things which I will appear to you. And so he says, "There's you've already seen me now, and I've told you some things here. But I'm also going to appear to you in the future, and I'm going to tell you more things. Paul continues in verse 17, summarizing Jesus' commission of him by saying, I am going to rescue you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now, a couple things to note out of this whole little section, uh, because that's Paul's summary of his conversion right here. Notice what he leaves out. In summarizing at this point for the sake of his defense before Agrippa, Paul doesn't mention anything about Ananias. In fact, most of these words that he says Jesus said to him, Jesus said to him through Ananias in the other accounts. And so Paul leaves that out just to clarify and simplify the story as he's telling it here, and he summarizes it. The second thing to notice is the description of what Paul's mission is going to mean with regards to the Gentiles. Verse 18, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. What I find fascinating about that language is that um, that sort of wording that shows up here in verse 18 is really similar to various lines and various ideas that show up in the letters of Ephesians and Colossians, which are actually going to be written not long from now when Paul gets transferred to Rome and is sitting in Roman imprisonment waiting to, to be uh, have his case heard before Nero. Paul writes those letters. And so in a few short months or maybe a year, Paul's going to write those letters and he uses some of these same themes. For example, he'll say in Colossians chapter 1, he'll, he'll describe conversion as being delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, that's, you know, the power of Satan to God, darkness and light. He says in Ephesians, the talks about, you know, having... Uh, experienced redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He talks about receiving an inheritance and all that. And so these themes are ways Paul expresses some of the the benefits of the gospel in some of his writings right around this same time. Darkness to light uh, pictures the idea of going from blindness and confusion and lack of understanding to being able to see and grasp what life is really about and what God is really about and the truth and all of that darkness to light from the power of Satan to God in Paul's writings and in the whole New Testament is really this idea of two different kingdoms from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God to whose authority you're under and so you've moved from the power and authority of Satan to the power and the authority of God, 
to have your sins forgiven and being wiped clean and being a, a, given a clean slate, forgiveness of sins, and to receive an inheritance among those who have been sanctified. Sanctified means those who have been consecrated and set apart for me. And so now, because you belong to him, you're now called as part of his family, and you're going to receive an inheritance. And Paul talks about that, as already noted in the book of Ephesians. And so Paul summarizes his conversion and his commission here in his address to King Agrippa as being sent to lead the Gentiles as well as the Jewish people into the truth about God. In verse 19, he continues and he says this, For, for that reason, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but continually proclaimed to those in Damascus at first and in Jerusalem and then in all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they are to repent and turn to God, performing deeds consistent with repentance. And so Paul assures Agrippa that uh, I had this vision from heaven, this vision of Jesus, who that's why I believe he's he's no longer dead, but he's alive because he spoke to me from heaven. And I wasn't disobedient to that vision, but I did exactly what he told me to do. I began immediately there in Damascus. I did it when I returned to Jerusalem and in the region of Judea. And then I traveled into the Gentile lands and I preached there that they are to repent and turn to God and that they are to bear fruit in keeping with their repentance. Now, beginning in verse 21, Paul takes all of this backstory and all of his testimony and ties it together to, to explain why it is he's under arrest and why it is he's standing trial and having this hearing uh, at this moment in time. So he says in verse 21, For these reasons, for the fact that I've preached to the Gentiles, for the fact that I saw Jesus, for the fact that I proclaimed Jesus, for these reasons, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to murder me. Notice, he's not going to let anybody off the hook. This is what actually happened. I was in the temple. Some Jews tried to kill me. So, verse 22, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day, testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place as to whether the Messiah was to suffer and whether as first from the resurrection of the dead, he would proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, the way that's translated, it seems pretty awkward. So let's just clarify the phrasing and make sure we understand exactly what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying to Agrippa is he's saying that I am standing here on trial simply because I believe that what Moses and the prophets said was going to happen did happen. That the Messiah was going to come. That's what Christ means as Messiah. That he was going to suffer and die. That he would rise from the dead. And then from there, he would send out good news to the Jewish people and also to the Gentiles. That's what he's saying. And so he once again is asserting that he is standing trial for the sake of the Jewish hope. Now, Festus, listening in on all of this, he's incredulous. And he, it seems, almost interrupts what Paul is saying. And so in verse 24, Festus says, While Paul was stating these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. So Festus interrupts Paul speaking, and Paul is focused more on Agrippa, but Festus is there, and Festus is like, this is absolutely ridiculous. You're out of your mind. He can tell Paul's learned the way he's presented his case, the way he speaks, right, that it's obvious Paul is 
not a not an uneducated person. He's a learned person. But he says, somehow your great learning is driving you crazy. You're out of your mind. The reason specifically is because of uh, the resurrection from the dead. This doesn't make any sense to Festus. It doesn't make any sense to the people listening in, right? As a pragmatist, as a political ruler, dead people don't come back to life. Uh, in fact, Festus is an illustration of the foolishness of those who would want to say, people back then just believed all sorts of crazy stuff. That's why they believed in the resurrection. People knew back then that dead people didn't come to life, right? And Festus here in this moment, thanks Paul's crazy for thinking that somehow there's been a resurrection of the dead, that the person resurrected, Jesus, appeared to Paul, and Paul is thus his ambassador and speaking these things to him. He thinks Paul's out of his mind. Paul responds in verse 25 by saying this, But Paul said, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I am speaking with truthful and rational words. What I am saying is true and rational, uh, true and reasonable, true and sensible words. That's what I'm speaking. Why does Paul believe these words are true and rational? Well, it's because of what he's about to say next. And we need to listen really closely because what Paul is about to say helps us see one of the distinctive, unique things about Christianity, one of the things that we in our post-Enlightenment world need to make sure we never forget, and that is the historical and public nature of the Christian faith. It's not a personal, private feeling. It's not a personal, personal, private religion. It is a public, open, objective, historical event on which it is based. That event is the resurrection. And so, this is what Paul says. I'm speaking true and rational words, verse 26, for the king knows about these matters, and I also speak to him with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus, the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus, this is all public. This is all verifiable. This is all objeb, uh, objective. It's out in the open, and it's a, it's a matter of uh, public record, public knowledge. And the king, whose family has been around for a long time, knows all about this, and I'm speaking to him. And he gets it. This is important that we pay attention to this, that the way to argue the case for Christianity is not by how it makes you feel. It's about the public nature of the resurrection of Jesus. And even if people seem uh, incredulous about that, even if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And it didn't happen just in people's hearts or in people's minds or in people's feelings. It happened in history in a public sort of way. That's what Paul is appealing to. And then with that, Paul turns and directly addresses King Agrippa and basically tries to leverage him, uh, almost appeal for his conversion. Look what he says, verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa, being Jewish, Agrippa, presenting himself to the Jewish people as a faithful Jew, Agrippa with a history of kind of Jewish connections. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. I know that you believe the prophets. Well, Agrippa is going to reply to that. And the way the Agrippa's reply is translated here, I don't think is the best way to understand it. Agrippa replies as translated here, almost making it sound like he's about to become a Christian. It's probably better to, to translate it as a question. They didn't have question marks in the ancient world. And so sometimes you have to infer when it's a question or not. This is probably a question. That's the way most scholars and translators take it. 
is as a question. So here's the way it's translated, and then I'll free it up to the way I think it would be better translated. Verse 28, Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you're going to persuade me to make a Christian of myself. Uh, Paul's response to that seems to suggest that uh, what Paul's re really replying to is a rhetorical question from Agrippa, and that seems to be the better way to translate it. So probably verse 28 should read like this. Agrippa replied to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you're going to persuade me to be a Christian? That seems to be what Agrippa is saying. He's heard one speech from Paul, and now Paul is appealing to him, and Agrippa seems to be saying, in such a short time, do you really think you're going to persuade me to be a Christian? Paul then replies to Agrippa in verse 29 by saying, I would wish to God that even in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day would become such as I am, except for these chains. And Paul's response is, whether it's a short time Agrippa, whether it's a long time Agrippa, for you, for the commanders, for Festus, for all these prominent men who are gathered around, for everybody here, my hope, my heart's desire is that all of them would become like me, would become a follower of Jesus like me, except, of course, for these chains. And I imagine Paul at that point hanging up the chains, holding up the chains on his hands, saying, I don't want you to have to suffer this, and I don't want you to have to suffer the disgrace and the shame that I'm suffering because of this. Nevertheless, I do want you to become a follower of Jesus. And so Paul's really appeal is uh, to Agrippa and all there that they would seriously consider what he's saying and they would become a follower of Jesus as the resurrected Lord and King themselves. Well, at that point, the hearing is over. And so verse 30 describes what happened. The king stood up the governor and Bernice along with him and those who were sitting with him. They all stood up and they went out of the auditorium. And so they withdrew to a side room and went out and they began talking to one another saying, this man is not doing anything deserving death or imprisonment. He hasn't broken any Roman law, in other words. That's what that means. Like there's no Roman law, no Roman violation. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. In other words, he's appealed to Caesar you're really obligated legally and politically to send him to Caesar, but there's nothing wrong with him. There's no guilt in him. There's no charge against Roman authority that he's violated or anything like that. He could have been set free. Now, before we leave this section, let me just offer a kind of a concluding wrap-up to this big theme that started in chapter 23. We watched it through 24, 25, and through this chapter as well. And that is Paul sitting here on you know, under arrest, incarcerated, multiple hearings, uh, waiting for the outcome of his trial with the assurance in the background from the Lord Jesus himself that he's going to stand trial in Rome. And that's been in the background. Paul then appeals to Caesar. That's how he's going to end up in Rome. But what strikes me, particularly here in this testimony, is the line Paul says to Agrippa, having obtained help from God, I stand here this day testifying to everybody. Like, having obtained help. He's been waiting for two years. It's been two years since Paul got that promise, and Paul hasn't lost faith. Paul hasn't grown cynical. Paul hasn't begun to doubt God's providential care and God's sovereign ability to fulfill his promise. I've obtained help, Paul says, to this day. And that really speaks, I think, of Paul's confidence in God and his ability to see things from God's perspective. Um, and we need that. We need to realize that 
um, that God's care and God's providence doesn't always work on our tamed timetable, and it doesn't always work the way we expect. Uh, Paul thought when he left, uh, ended the third missionary journey, he was going to stop by Jerusalem, and then he was going to head to Rome, and he had all these grand plans. It didn't work out. He got uh, arrested in the temple, even though he was trying to placate the Jews, right? Uh, then there was a death plot. Then he was sat, and they were trying to get a bribe. I mean, all of this just delayed Paul's plans and rearranged Paul's plans, and yet Paul can say with assurance, having obtained help from God to this day. And I I think Paul's um, faith and example is good for us to remember that we need we need God's perspective on things, and it's going to look different. We need to be flexible and hold our plans loosely, trust God's sovereignty, and see things differently. Paul's even willing to die if that should be the case. He's already said that on his way to Jerusalem. He's said that in his hearing before Festus. I'm not going to try to avoid that, right? And so he he trusts God, and he trusts that God has his best interest at heart and that he is being helped by God, even at this point, two years waiting, praying, hoping, wondering, how in the world am I ever going to get to Rome at this point? And yet he believes God's going to get him there. God's going to fulfill his promise. He's obtained help from God to this very day.